Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I am joined as usual by Terry Fakes and we are fresh back in the country from the Holy Lands. And so instead of doing a slideshow night, as you typically do when you go on a great trip like this, we did want to pause for a moment and talk about a couple of things about the trip, specifically some things that we learned when we were there. So I think a lot of people think these are trips where you go, of course you've been several times, you teach, you go to these sites, but this trip was kind of unique for me because I feel like we learned a lot. We did, uh, just to refresh your memory, because of COVID, basically uh, Israel hasn't had any significant number of tourists for two years, almost exactly two years right now. So a lot has happened. One of the smart things I think they did during that time is knowing that tourism is one of their top industries. So, of course, it hurt them a lot. But I think they took that opportunity to do more excavations. Mm-hmm. And without tourists there, you could actually excavate more quickly. And I think what you and I saw were new things mm-hmm. uh, dug up out of the ground that we hadn't seen before. That's one of the things that's most surprising when you go over there is you think, this stuff has been there for thousands of years, and yet a lot of it is still a active dig site. Right. We don't actually know what all is over there yet. Exactly. And one of the things you realize if you go is we know where certain sites are. Of course, you have big Jerusalem, Temple Mount. Even there, there's an active dig site right now. That's right. But you have the places that you know about. And then you have these places that kind of come back into biblical history. And we're going to talk about a couple of those today that have just recently been uncovered. And the reason we want to do that is not just to say, oh, the Holy Land is so awesome, wish you could have been there. It's to say, I was really struck, and I think you were too, that when we went this time, after two years of no tourism, they were able to get some shovels in the ground, do some excavations, find a few new things, and it turns out that each of these things corroborate the biblical story. And so a lot of times we get a little nervous about archaeology. What if something disproves the Bible? Or what if what the Bible says isn't there? It's been my experience that if you dig and you look at the record and you see what historians are finding, contrary to what you might see on the History Channel, the Bible is corroborated over and over and over again. And we had several instances where we showed up this year and thought, that is so cool because it corroborates what the Bible says that we wanted to share with you in this episode. Well, and one of those places, maybe just start in Jerusalem with what's called the Old City of David. And if you know anything about Jerusalem, David uh, took Jerusalem away from the Jebusites and made it the capital. And that happened roughly about a thousand years before the time of Christ. And so, the, uh, needless to say, the city was much smaller at that point, and there's an area that is called the City of David. So when David was alive, this is what the city looked like. Then, of course, Solomon came after him and made the city bigger and, of course, built the temple on top of the mount and so forth. But in that old City of David that dates to 1000 B.C., there's still a lot of archaeology happening. And one, there's things that have been unearthed that we've seen before, and one is a kind of a stepstone wall that dates to David's time. But one of the really interesting things is as they've dug in that area, they have found the uh, what are called bulla, B-U-L-L-A. And what that is is in those days when you had official correspondence, you would write your scroll, you'd roll it up, and you'd send it 
But to make sure that it was secure and that no one tampered with it, nobody read it, you would put a little wax and then you would take a, a ring or something that had an image on it and you would seal into that clay or into the wax, typically clay, and then it was closed and it was sealed. Well, those little, when it got to where it was going, they would take that little piece of clay, that little piece of mud that had been sealed, and they'd pull it off and toss it and then open it, and so they knew it hadn't been tampered with. Well, those little pieces of clay that have a seal in them, it turns out that it looks like they were kind of getting them in the official palace area there in the city of David and tossing them out the window. Yeah, when they open it, they just take that piece of clay, toss it out the window, open the scroll. Well, when you dig up where outside that building, all of a sudden you find these little clay stamped seals and what they have on them turns out to be really significant. This is the way a lot of archaeological discoveries go. It's, it's, it's not always the most important stuff that gets preserved. Right. And it's like the thing that you would think that you would find. Right. Instead, it's like this. These were essentially trash to yeah. those people. So they threw them out the window. And through some kind of preservation, whether it's because of the right soil or the right timing and the air and the rain and all of that... We now have excavated a garbage can right. that's full of these seals. But the thing that's so significant about it is those seals match exactly with the list of officials that we have in the book of Jeremiah, for example, or in the later records in Second Kings of Hezekiah's reign. Right. You're seeing these names, and not just their names. So-and-so, son of so-and-so, gives you a pretty exactly. indication this has got to be the person. The exact person that are mentioned in the Bible. And, you know, this particular group that was found came from later than David's time. Let's call it 700 B.C. when Hezekiah was king, Isaiah was a prophet, and the Assyrians had come down. You may remember this story from the Bible. The Assyrians have come down and they are going to attack Jerusalem and the beautiful passages in the Bible about Hezekiah praying to God and so forth. But the important thing is there's a seal that's been found that has... Hezekiah's name mm -hmm. and a seal that's been found that has Isaiah's name. Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, Jeremiah also lists some of the officials. Their seals have been found here as well, yes. which really promotes the historicity of the, the people the Bible said were there were there. And that adds credibility to what the Bible says happened, also happened at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is just one of those things that you wouldn't have been looking for, mm -hmm. but is a really major discovery. Because what it does is it validates an entire era of right. biblical history. Now, we think that the Bible is true regardless of this, but what it does, especially to outside researchers, is this era in the reign of Hezekiah and the ministry of Isaiah is what the Bible says. Therefore, we have a strong basis to believe what it says. Got the names right, got the people right. You could fact check that in real time at that time. And now we also can say, sure enough, here's all their seals. They really were working in the Capitol. They really were doing official business. They really were who the Bible says they were. That's a huge discovery, even in a little garbage bin area that just captured these seals. That's exactly right. And, and I think it's really important because the Christian faith is a little, is different in some significant respects. And one is, it's grounded in real people and real history. Obviously, it's God working in real history, but 
Here's my point. Let's suppose for a moment you read that story about Hezekiah and you said, you know, there's no evidence that Hezekiah ever existed. But, you know, as Christians, we don't really need for Hezekiah to have been a real person. It's just a story that's made up that's telling us, put your trust in God and everything will work out. Well, that's one way of reading the Bible. It's wrong. But the reason that that strikes you as wrong is that, wait a minute, the Bible says Hezekiah was a real person. It says these things really happen. In other words, our faith is grounded in history and people. And so when you see this corroborating evidence, I think that's important for Christianity because our God not only claims to have lessons for us, he claims to be working through real people in real history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to be careful to sp- not to spiritualize too much and give too much away historically. Right. And this is just one of those finds that reminds us that we can insist on the things that the Bible says about history because mm-hmm. God is working in history. The find that I thought was the coolest was actually at a place that's not mentioned directly in the Bible, but is involved in the biblical story called the Herodium. And this is a place that Herod built. This is King Herod the Great. So think before Jesus' birth, King Herod the Great, who's the king over all of the Judean area, on behalf of the Romans. Mm -hmm. He built a place about five miles away from Bethlehem called the Herodian. And it is a military slash administrative fortress slash getaway palace slash summer home uh-huh. away from Jerusalem. And this is strategically located to where you can see the Dead Sea from there. We think that as tall as the temple was, you could see the top of the temple or at least Herod's uh, palace in Jerusalem from uh-huh. here. And what Herod did was he went and took this hill and he built on top of the hill a huge tower, a huge circular tower. And this wall is gigantic. Mm-hmm. And in there, he brought some of his administrative uh, people, some of the guards that he would have had. Of course, when he's traveling there, he has quarters for people to stay in, and he has a palace as well. Mm -hmm. It's a place where he can relax, and he can run to, just in case he needs to get out of Jerusalem in a fix. In case the Jews rebel against him, which was always a, a concern for Herod. And when we had been there before, there was a theory about how it was used, how Herod would have come there, why he would have come there. And they were just discovering that there may have been a tomb there for Herod. Mm-hmm. This may have been Herod's mausoleum. And they're starting to develop certain theories about why that would have been or what it would have looked like. Well, in the last couple of years, they've made several new discoveries, one of which being the front of the Herodian has this long stairway that Herod took and raised up to be a grand entrance. Literally, into the side of a mountain, if you will. Yeah, up from it's the... It's magnificent looking, but it has been covered up right. until the past two years. Right. It's up from his palace on the ground, goes straight up to the mountain, lots of steps, and they discovered these reception rooms when they uncovered the stairway that are so ornate. They look like Roman rooms. Right. So people start asking, why do these rooms look this way? Well, sure enough, they start to find some evidence of where they got the materials and what it would have looked like and other things that they may have been imitating. And then they discover that in 15 BC, Augustus, this is this is Caesar Augustus, so this is the, the Roman heir to Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. Octavian. His second in command, whose name is Marcus Agrippa, came to visit Herod. One of the places that he came, so he would have probably sailed into Caesarea, right. and one of the places that he came was the Herodian. 
And Herod wanted to make this the best reception for his Roman overlord, so he made it look exactly like a Roman drawing room. This was a royal kind of reception in Judea that you would have gotten of all places in Rome. Yes. So this room is so decked out with Roman style, paintings, scenes from Agrippa's um, military exploits in Egypt. And uh-huh. Anyway, Herod really went above and beyond to host this person. And so this, this theory of the Herodium is changing in real time because Herod is adapting this place to this visitor. You know, one of the things I thought, a small thing that was interesting, but in finding some of the storerooms, they realized he had wine there that came from Italy, that came from Greece, that came from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you expect in this backwater Judea. And it really raises your estimation of just how powerful and how rich and how politically connected Herod was. And uh, it's thought that he even imported the wine that his visitor was his favorite one. Mm -hmm. It really is amazing. And the dimension that becomes very important for the biblical story is you read that Jesus is born, Herod is threatened. And Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem. They They take a flight to Egypt because of this. Well, you don't know just reading the biblical text because they would have known the history when it was first written that this is one of the most powerful people in the world. Mm-hmm. Herod is one of the most powerful, wealthiest, most influential people in the world. And to prove that, one of the things that this new find at the Herodium does is it proves it by saying he was so important that the Roman emperor sent his second-in-command to pay him a visit. Right. So when we say that Jesus was born in the shadow of the Roman power, he literally was born in the shadow of the Herodium, where just a few years earlier, the second most powerful man in Rome had come. Exactly. This adds a lot of texture to the biblical story. It does. You know, up until when we were there two years ago, the Herodian was a mountain with a big fortress on top, uh, ruins of a big fortress with some cisterns. And we looked at it and we said, okay, this is one of Herod's fortresses and it looks like he had a palace here. But two years later, you walk in and they've cut into the side of this mountain and you find the stairs, you find the reception rooms, you find, and you realize, oh my, this is far more than just uh, a fortress here. Mm-hmm. And it really adds color to and corroborates the biblical story. Well, I want to mention a third place, and this one was also special to us because a lot of times on our trips over there, you know, you're a little bit at the mercy of the weather, you're at the mercy of the time, and because it was a little emptier over there this year, we were able to get through some things faster. We got to go to a site I've never been to before. I don't know if you've, you've been there before, but I, I've never been, and it's the city of Lachish. Now, this is a city that is mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's a really important city in the span of ancient history geopolitically, even more so than what we read about in the Bible. But it's also one of those cities that enters the biblical story with a long heritage of history behind it. It's one of these cities that has many layers of city, Canaanite cities, Israelite cities. It's been conquered many times. It's it's at the crossroads, and for reasons we'll talk about in a moment, of ancient world empires. 
And so they've excavated part of Lachish. They have an Israelite part of Lachish that is from about the time of Hezekiah. Right. And then you have an ancient Canaanite city that's from anywhere between 700 and 1,000 years before that, and you have Canaanite temples there. So it's, it's interesting yeah. for several reasons. We had never been able to go there before, but I was really glad that we got to go there this time because Lachish has for a long time been one of those corroborating uh, historical finds that take the secular history world and the biblical history world and bring them together. That's really true. Lachish is a city that's been occupied for a long time because of where it sits. And so just imagine in your mind, if you're in Assyria, say modern-day Iraq, and you want to go down and conquer Jerusalem, let's say, well, there are a lot of hills, a lot of mountains. So what you're going to do is go down the coast, because it's nice and flat. And when you get to a certain valley, you're going to turn left. And you're going to go right down this valley, eastward, and right to Jerusalem. Well, where you make that left turn, that's where Lachish is. And that's why there's always been a fortress there. It's because every conqueror came down the coast, made a left turn, mm-hmm. and headed inward, inland through right. the valley. And so Lachish was that. And it was one of the most important fortresses for Hezekiah. Remember, 700 B.C., Hezekiah, Isaiah are alive. And Sennacherib is the Assyrian king who says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Well, he comes down the coast, and he realizes, I've got to take Lachish. And we knew a little bit about this uh, from the biblical record, and so he does take Lachish. And the, thing, the way we know about that is less from the biblical record and more from Sennacherib's PR. Uh, several years ago, unearthed a, a piece of stone, and it's literally a prism. I mean, it's got many sides to it, and it's got Assyrian writing on it, and it's a bunch of bragging. By Sennacherib, he said, well, I went down into Syria and I conquered these cities and I went on down to Judea and I conquered this city and that city and that city. And he gets to Lachish and he says, and I conquered Lachish and he goes into great detail. Well, later when he gets back home to his palace in Assyria, he carves a 50 foot plus long hallway with almost life-size big stone pillars that show pictures carved into stone of his conquests. And a bunch of these are pictures of how they built a siege ramp and took Lachish and how the brutal ways they killed the inhabitants and how the slaves came out of Lachish and bowed down to him. Mm -hmm. Those panels are in the British Museum, and you and I, several years ago, looked at those Mm -hmm. in the British Museum, and we go, there's Lachish. There's him bragging about that. Right. But until relatively recently, Lachish hasn't been unearthed. I mean, I don't think we doubted the truth of that, mm-hmm. but it was really interesting to get into Lachish where this happened, to see the remains of the ramp they had built. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, corroborating uh, what the biblical record said. Right. And actually corroborating what Sennacherib bragged about. Exactly. And you know the story after that. He turns from Lachish, he goes to Jerusalem, he besieges Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. And he sends his rabshakeh, they taunt them, and Hezekiah goes to the Lord and prays because there's no way they can fend off. Right. And one of the things that the rabshakeh says is, you know all those towns we just conquered? One of them being Lachish. Their guys didn't help them either. Right. And they thought they were going to be the holdout, and they weren't. And you're probably not going to be either. And then it says the angel of the Lord came and struck down 185,000 mm-hmm. of the Assyrian army, and they went back to their home. So this is another one of those towns that it was cool to get to stand there and see it for the first time because 
it corroborates the Bible. It intersects between big eras of history, the Assyrian Empire, the uh, Israelites, the time of Hezekiah. But it also reinforced the lesson that we learn every time we go over there, that God is the God of history. He Mm -hmm. used someone like Sennacherib and his PR that he wrote down and carved into stone afterwards to corroborate his story. Exactly. About what he was doing through his chosen people in the Promised Land. Yeah, the, the record on Sennacherib's prism is what that piece of stone is called. He says he destroyed Lachish, but curiously, he brags about surrounding Jerusalem, but he doesn't say anything about taking Jerusalem. Now, historically speaking, that's very odd. As a historian and an archaeologist, you'd go, if you can take Lachish, you can definitely take Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lachish was quite a fortress. Mm-hmm. So why did he not? Now you turn to the biblical record and you realize there's no historical explanation for why that didn't happen. And you go to the biblical record and you realize, but God mm-hmm. intervened. And all of a sudden, right. what you cannot explain through history and archaeology, you can't explain by the Bible. That's exactly right. And so I think each of these three examples were enlightening to us, yes. uh, just reminding us. It's not that we need every historical detail to be confirmed. At exactly. some point, we trust the Bible because God himself authenticates his word. But there's a lot of pressure to say, eh, is that really true or are they fudging the numbers a little bit? Did this person really exist as a big-time king or was it just a little regional uh, right. shepherd kingdom? Well, the archaeology comes along and proves that the Bible really is substantiated historically as well as, we would say, theologically. And that's really an encouraging thing. For those of you that are tempted to read the stories of the Bible and say, I just have a hard time believing this, look to some of these examples. And there are many more. These are just three that we were talking about on this trip because we got to see them. There are dozens and dozens, hundreds of examples of archaeology confirming what the Bible said happened historically. Right. And, you know, for me, the way I came to faith was an investigation of a number of faiths. And I realized it is faith. And I realized early on that everyone has faith. Whether you believe in God, you believe in something. And you take things at at faith. But I came to the point where I realized that if I'm going to have to have faith in something, I want my faith to at least be reasonable. Not a blind leap of faith. It says, okay, I guess I'll be a Hindu. Or, gee, I guess I'll be a Muslim. What is the most reasonable faith? I didn't expect proof, but when you look at Christianity, grounded in historicity, Mm -hmm. authenticated so frequently by this, you realize this is a reasonable explanation of the meaning of the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just a blind leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important for a lot of people when they come to faith to realize God is willing to put his story out on the line and let the world uh, shoot at it. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.